Like, when I watched the episodes, I just was like, are you effing kidding me? Like, I'm like, you better, don't you dare. You know, it's like I'm watching reality TV. This is the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire Podcast. And I'm your host, Naomi Ekparrigan, writer, comedian, and vampire enthusiast extraordinaire. Yes, I'm an enthusiast extraordinaire. It's extraordinary that I'm so enthused. Each week, we cover the latest episode of AMC's Interview with the Vampire. And today, there is a lot to go over. And no time to waste, folks, because Claudia is here. This week's episode is titled, The Ruthless Pursuit of Blood with All a Child's Demanding, but which I have renamed, Why Would You Adopt a Teenage Girl? Coming up, I'm talking with the new star of the show, Bailey Bass, who plays Claudia. We'll get into the trials and tribulations of perpetual puberty. Then I go deep with Dr. Katherine Ramsland, who's written all the books on Anne Rice and Interview with the Vampire. She'll give us the lowdown on the woman behind the vamps. We got spoilers coming up, so if you don't want to get spoiled, then don't. I don't know where to bite. Her body's all charred. You know you can do this. And she'll be what? A lap dog. Not a dog. A daughter. You were ready to abandon our home. Now you want a third. In this episode, Louis thinks for some reason it would be a good idea to turn a teenager into a vampire. Of course, this teenage daughter is a psychopath. I said it, Claudia, a psychopath. All right? But we start in present-day Dubai, where Louis needs a day off from all his busy interview scheduling. Okay, he says, I can't talk anymore. He just blows Malloy off, and it was like, okay, you told Malloy to come here, so I don't know what else you're doing. Anyway... It gives Malloy some downtime to be with Claudia's diaries. This means we now are in Claudia's head. Move over, Louis. We got a new focal point. And at first, Claudia loves being a vampire. Okay, no more existential dread, no more burning in a house fire. Okay, plus she gets a lush, plush new coffin. She eats cable car drivers. It has a real My Two Dads energy. Okay, if you remember that sitcom, it's like My Two Dads with a murderous twist. We love it. But of course, despite all the fun, of teenage vampiring, the existential dread comes for Claudia just as it came for Louis. Because of course it does. That's what happened when you a vampire. She's stuck at 14 forever. Lord knows I wouldn't want to be 14 listening to Ani DeFranco albums, putting on Retin-A and just hoping things change. Things come tumbling down when Claudia falls for a human boy. They start making out in the horse stables because where else can you go? And you know what, honey? She kills him, y'all. She kills him. Drains him dry in the horse stables. She is not like the other girls. You know what? Why don't we get into it with Claudia herself? My guest, Bailey Bass. Hi, Bailey. So nice to meet you. I'm Naomi. Hi, Naomi. How you doing? Oh, good. Now that you're here, girl. Now, before I get into my hard-hitting journalism, okay, because I am just, if not, nothing, if not hard-hitting, okay? (laughs) If you had the choice to be turned into a vampire at any age... What age would you, Bailey, choose knowing you'd stay that age forever? Um, first off, I don't necessarily want to live forever. Me like, neither. That's just too much. Yeah. Like, yes. life is precious because we don't live forever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you take that away, which we talk about a lot on the show, like, 
what do these people turn into? And Anne Rice, even like when she talks about how crazed these 200 year old vampires are, <laughs> uh-huh. like they start going insane because it's like, what what do you have? Like, what does love mean anymore mm-hmm. if you can live forever? Um, but if I had to choose, I'm only 19 and I feel like every year, especially since I'm still in my adolescence, it's I grow and I change. So it's definitely hard to say. But I am a Twilight fan. <laughs> so let's just do it at like 19 and get to go to high school over and over again. <laughs> okay, no, Bailey, honey, that's a young person's folly. No, honey, you don't want to go <laughs> to see, high school I, again. I'm a huge Twilight fan. I love the vampires. Also, like, they rule high school because they've done it so many times. And I didn't go to high school. And even though my brother always says, he's like, Bailey, it's not like the movies, which it's not. It really is not. (laughs) I just would love to be like, just come in, go to different states, different countries, and get to experience what that's like. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. I mean, as a vampire fan, I do love Twilight as well, even though I was a bit older when, you know, I was reading the books. So it was funny because I was like, books? Yes. I was like, yeah, I was like 10 watching Breaking Dawn Part 2 like this <laughs> with my eyes closed. <laughs> I was like, oh, honeymoon. <laughs> well, it's funny because one thing I do I like about this show so much, but in general with vampires, what kills what can kill me with Twilight is Edward's like always brooding. And it's like, honey, you're hot. You're living forever. Have some fun with it. Yeah, but... <laughs> Lestat and Louis do that too. Claudia is the one that's out here, like just doing her thing. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, how did you find yourself relating to Claudia's journey? I do remember what it's like to be that young, but then again, Claudia matures so quickly, and there's something special about her growth. But I think everyone can connect to the fact that she wants her own power, mm-hmm. but then she still needs the person that raised her, Louis. And I feel like. As kids are growing up, we have that a lot of those moments where we're like, oh, my gosh, we love our parents so much. We need them. They have gotten us to this point in our lives. But who are we without our parents? And that's something everyone can connect to when they watch this show. Well, this is why, honey, we have you on the pod, because you have to tell the people, okay? You have to tell the people (laughs) what went into the art. They can't just be thinking you just show up one day and you're like, look at me. I'm a vampire teen. I mean, I assume Jacob, who plays Louis, and Sam, who plays Lestat, had already been filming for a while before you joined the set. So what was it like coming onto the show? And I mean, this episode has you really thrown into the deep end. My first scenes on set was the scene where Claudia almost kills herself. <gasps> the scene, yes. No, the mean? first one? That was my first week. Wow. My first week was the scene where Claudia almost kills herself. The scene where she, where she gets changed, mm-hmm. and I'm like burned. Yeah. Um, and then the scene where she kills Charlie. That was what? all in the first 10 days. Oh yes! My God. So, oh, Bailey Bass, this is your first time on a show. We're gonna just, you're just gonna do all these things. Yup, yup. <laughs> Trial by fire. It was very deep end, but in a way, like, hearing it like I I know that I would be terrified but at the same time it's almost like let's do all the hard stuff first while your energy is there you're excited you you don't have too much time to get in your head about it you know what I mean like it's like dive in okay let's do this welcome to New Orleans but I will say the the scene at the end of episode four that people see is not the scene that I did the first week we redid it and and because Rollin Jones the writer was like this is not 
powerful enough. Hmm. At the end, um, Lestat and Louis came out of their coffins and they were just stunned by what they were seeing, which is Claudia burning mm-hmm, her arm. Mm-hmm. But we changed it, as people will see in episode four, if they're not there. This is a moment she has her, herself, which is very powerful because where she ends, where she's screaming. Mm-hmm. And that was the first take. Rollin was like, I just want you to yell. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I just literally, my voice is cracking yelling because it's like, I just want to be free. She just wants to feel something because she feels like nothing. Let me tell you something, you stuck-up, flower-covered, $3 fancy fucking paper diary. I'm doing just fine. And how do I know that? Because the first man I killed called me the devil. And the last boy I killed, the last boy I'll ever love in this world, called me an angel. So that means I'm on the right path. And that means there's so much more fun out there to have. I'm just getting started. How much time do you, Jacob and Sam, have to talk about the family dynamic, to hang out, to get a feel for each other before the camera started rolling? Barely any time because I came in to New Orleans in episode three Mm -hmm. and they were already there for episode one and two. Mm -hmm. And we work so much that anytime we're not on set, we want to sleep. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, but I do remember the first time um, I did my first scene on set playing Claudia and... Jacob is, like, clapping, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, you're here. Like, we're all together. And I was like, (laughs) it was really precious. Oh, my God. He's an angel. He's an angel. That's so sweet. (laughs) But it does definitely also set up this kind of, like, you know, Louis. And him doing that is very much like, okay, this is our dynamic. Louis is excited for Claudia. He has hopes pinned Mm -hmm. on Claudia. Claudia is going to fill in a God-sized hole. <laughs> and Claudia did yeah. not sign up for that. You know, that's, Louis the person that's raising her. She doesn't have every, everything that she owned before she was turned into a vampire, that is gone. So everything that she knows about society is through Louis's mouth. I want to talk about the extent to which you built this family unit with Jacob and Sam. Um, first of all, here's my question for you. Why do you think Louis even had Lestat turn Claudia? Because when I inter- I talked to Jacob, I go, Jacob, does Louis not know what a teenage girl is? I was like, if you want a friend till the end, it is not a teenage girl. Okay. So <laughs> you have funny. got to think this through. For you, what do you think it was, you know, when you're doing the work in episode four, which is pretty much the introduction to these two men, this relationship, and then you- Claudia's mm-hmm. place in that relationship. You know, what are your first thoughts Thoughts on them t- turning. Yeah, like, because it's true, like, Claudia girl. having fun. But at the same time, yeah. as we know from the end, Claudia's angry, you know? Some years pass and she yeah. gets mad. Well, we see that evolution of all the feelings she feels. And I always go back to the fact of the science. I love science in school. And her prefrontal cortex will never develop because they stop that. And the prefrontal cortex is what, you know, makes adults choose right from wrong. Mm. Before that, teenagers, they just go straight from emotion. And 
that is something that I remembered over and over again playing Claudia because that part of her brain will never develop. So yes, she's maturing based on her experiences, but she will always be someone that acts by emotion first and then is like, wait, so I wasn't supposed to do that because of this? Because wait, did I hurt your feelings? You know, like she's just going straight from how she feels. Mm -hmm. And she feels deeply, very deeply, which is why her feelings are so grand, Mm -hmm. you know, which is why when she hurts Charlie, it's like the end of the world for her, which is why when she finally feels love from someone else besides Louis and Lestat, Mm -hmm. it's like she doesn't even know how to express how incredible that is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think Louis is trying to get from Claudia that he can't get from Lestat? He wants a sister. His relationship with Grace is not, it's just tearing away bit by bit. Mm -hmm. And he just wants a sister and that's what he gets from Claudia. But then he also wants this family unit. Mm -hmm. But then... It, it gets really dark because yeah. <laughs> Lestat, honestly, no, it's no, so it's true. Twisted. I've seen the whole thing, honey. It yeah, gets yeah, yeah. Dark, dark, dark. <laughs> yeah, it's because Lestat, think about it. Lestat owned Louis. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I think Louis wanted to own someone. And in some parts, you see Louis does own Claudia, but she is so, she goes by feeling. She doesn't think things through that she's kind of like trying to rip out of this box. You're wondering if your nails will be like that forever. And the answer is yes. <gasps> How'd you do that? Well, you'll do it too, in time, my little milkweed. I'll teach you. Just like I taught Louis here. But not if we're going to have family secrets. We're a family? Yeah. But with no secrets. All right. So what's that for? That's where we burn bodies. Why do we burn bodies? Now, I was curious as to, you've talked about building Claudia, right? And doing the backstory, doing the writing. How much did you engage with or utilize Anne Rice's books? You know, because obviously your Claudia's older, your Claudia's black. It's a different situation, but at the same time, you got a whole 13-book series. So it's like, yeah. how, how do you kind of choose to engage with that and when? It's it's different, but the essence is still there. Claudia is still raging. Because we chose to age her up, because Roland chose to age her up, um, she's stuck with these raging hormones. And that's something that's different, but I think was very, very necessary to truly understand. We, we get to touch upon what it's like to be a woman the only woman in a household of men. Right. You know, we get to touch upon what it like what sexism feels like sometimes, what it feels like to be the the only one. You know, she doesn't really have any girlfriends. She doesn't have a mom. And you see how that affects Claudia. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it was just really interesting to play around with that. When I read the books, I annotated them like crazy. Wow. Like crazy. Anytime Claudia felt something deeply, anytime she, like she loves art. Mm -hmm. That's something that you learn about Claudia when you read the books. And that's something that I add into my backstory. And then I made a Google sheet of comparing everything in the book 
and everything. I did so much writing. Um, <laughs> Barry type A. Everything, <laughs> everything in the book and everything in the script. And then I would compare hmm. what lines are the same because Rollin is a huge fan of Anne Rice's books. Yeah. And he was very intentional about even like using her writing in the scripts. Right, right. I mean, there's definitely a lot of love for Anne's original books in the show. But you know what? I have a lot of love for you because you know what? Things take a dark turn for Claudia as this episode goes on. She falls for a cute boy, but then, well, let's listen to a clip. I was, and he, and I bit him, and now he. It's easy to get carried away when you're young and in love. Please save him. Turn him. I can't. You can. You did it to me. He's dead. You didn't have to kill him. You killed him completely. Let's start. Just try, please. You drained him dry. Now go on. Clean up after yourself. <laughs> Remember this? His face as it melts. This is why we never get close to mortals. Because sooner or later, they end up dead. Ugh. Ugh. Punch me in the gut. Okay? It's just, it's really hard to hear those, especially because we're listening to it. And now I'm hearing it with the score as well, which makes it, you know. I can't take it. For a character that we've only had an episode of, Claudia goes through every trial imaginable. I mean, my God. You know, this 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 vampire life has come with a whole lot of strings and a whole lot of destruction. And one of the things, you know, you call uh Claudia is uh, Claudia calls Louis like Papa Louis and then Uncle Les. And this for me is one of those scenes where, you know, you do see the difference in their relationships. Because on one hand, Lestat is educating Claudia. At first, it seems like he's nice, right? Where it's like it's easy to get carried away when you're young and in love. But then he really does seem to be relishing in her being in pain. You know, like really kind of tossing it off like, okay, clean up after yourself. You know, like it's like he's having a little fun with that moment in a way that to me really dictated the relationship between the two of them from that moment on. Yeah, the power dynamics between Lestat and Claudia, they change and it's a flow and he has a lot of power right now and he uses it to advantage. It's almost like he gets off from it. Mm -hmm. he, he likes having the power and he needs to establish it and make Claudia sit down and she refuses to. Mm -hmm. So they're always going to bud heads because of that. Right, right. Do you think that Lestat is right when he says, you know, this is why we can never get close to mortals because sooner or later they end up dead? I'm never going to think Lestat is right. I freaking can't stand it. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Me too! Me like, too! Literally, like, I am... Like, when I watched the episodes, it was two months after filming, and I just was like, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm that viewer that's, like, in the screen. Like, you better, don't you dare! You know, it's like I'm watching reality TV. And I even remember reading the script, and it's just like... 
I'm like gasping mm-hmm. and I'm making inaudible noises because it's just like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> I know. One last thing. We like to end the show with what we call a little taste, which is a vampire specialty, temptation, okay? And I would love if you could give the viewers, without giving any spoilers, a taste of what's to come. What is something coming that you think people are going to be surprised by? Something that they're not expecting? The biggest part of this show is the fact that there are no villains, but then maybe there are. We are all villains. And it's proving how complex all relationships are. Everything is based on perspective. How we feel about each other is based on perspective. And Rollin did an incredible job of showing Louis Lestat and Claudia's perspectives and why we do the things that we do. And that mastermind is going to play into every single episode. It's really just an ongoing chess game, and you're just on the edge of your seat seeing who's going to win. Absolutely. Oh, my God. (laughs) Edge of my seat is right, Annie. Now, Bailey. Bailey, Bailey, Bailey. Thank you so much for coming, taking time and talking to me, all things episode four. Thank you so much for having me. I learned a lot while I'm sitting here talking to you. It's been dope. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, this shit is getting dark. Episode four has really got me thinking more about Anne Rice. I mean, we're getting into some dark, twisted stuff, and I need to know more about who this woman is. Who is the mastermind behind all of this? And for that, I turn now to Dr. Katherine Ramslin. She's written too many books to count. I'm going to say that right now. And she is a professor of forensic psychology. But back in the 90s, Dr. Ramslin wrote the Anne Rice biography, Prism of the Night. And she also co-wrote numerous companion books to the Vampire Chronicles with Anne, y'all. She was writing with Anne. I told you, this podcast, we got the direct line. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You are the one who knows, okay? <laughs> you contain the knowledge. You contain the multitudes. And also, just for the listeners who can't see, your hair looks flawless, okay? For the record, <laughs> y'all, Dr. Ramsland has a blowout right now. The cut is fresh. The blowout is stunning. I just need you to know. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, you were teaching philosophy when you first met Anne. Is that correct? That is correct. I was teaching philosophy at Rutgers University, And I was reading the third in the Vampire Trilogy, Queen of the Damned. And I thought, somebody needs to write a biography of this woman. I didn't know the first thing about writing a biography. (laughs) But she said, uh, she had said in an interview, people should be uh, supported in doing the things they really want to do. So I called her up. I told her, well, this is what I really want to do. And so (laughs) I already have a proposal written, if you'll just look at it and you don't like it, I'll go away. But seven books later, it worked. Wow. (laughs) What was Anne like when you first met her? She was open and obviously willing to speak with you as someone who had never written a biography before. (laughs) I think that's, you know, very generous to say, okay, let's give this a shot. I like (laughs) where your head's at with this. I think because I was teaching philosophy, that intrigued her to be taken seriously by an academic as well. Mm -hmm. She answered the phone herself. Nobody answered for her. Uh, so those are the days, right? Right, right. 
five more years, I wouldn't have gotten past, you know, anyone on the phone. But yeah. but at that time, you know, she was sort of feeling her way around things too. She was interested in the kinds of questions I was asking. By the time I got to the third book, which is Queen of the Damned, I could see a lot of the same themes that I was teaching in a course called Philosophy and Literature. Mm-hmm. I also was teaching Existentialism. So she had many of the, the same themes I was teaching from people like Camus and Kierkegaard. And I thought, this is, this is a book I can use to apply these philosophical ideas in these metaphorical creatures. I just wanted to know what was her background that she would have filled her novels with these existential themes. Right. She had lost the original short story. And I weirdly had a dream of where I thought it was. And <laughs> she said, there's no way you can find it. And she let me go into her attic, which is piles and piles and piles of manuscripts. But I did have it within 10 minutes. Because oh, really? <laughs> she, must have, she must have said something that you know got into my own psyche because I figured out where it, she would have had it, and I did find it. We ended up publishing it in the second rendition of The Vampire Companion. Hmm. Now, in episode four of the show, this is when we first meet the character of Claudia. And in the books, she's five years old. In our show, she's 14 years old, aged her up a bit. In the book, Claudia is inspired by Anne's daughter, Michelle. Can you tell us a bit about Michelle and what happened to her? Michelle was daughter to Anne and Stan, and their only child at the time. And she got sick when she was four years old with leukemia, a blood disease. And they watched her over the course of two years, wasting her way, going through treatments, changing her appearance, going from an innocent child to one with adult eyes, eyes that understood suffering and understood pain and understood she might not make it out, that she might die and her parents are doing nothing about it. And they saw all this. And so a lot of their guilt is wrapped up in that figure. And when Anne wrote about Claudia, the idea was that she was Louis in the story. Lestat was her husband, Stan. Mm. St- Lestat is the one who made Claudia into vampire after Louis originally drank blood from her. And then Lestat makes her into a vampire to keep Louis with him. Mm. So it's, it's really the picture of a marriage in conflict over what's going on with this child. Mm-hmm. And that was the way it was for Anne and Stan at the time because they were going through a lot with all of this and they, they each had their own ideas about how, how Michelle should be treated. And you know, so it was a very difficult time for all three of them, similar to the way you feel all of that in Interview the Vampire when, when they have this child. And then as she's growing and learning and acquiring the mind of a woman in a child's mm-hmm. body, the incredible limitations, the weakness of this child, the small child's body that can't encompass her her hunger for the world, her ability to get out there and do things. So she develops this incredible anger right. at the two of them. Why did you do this to me? It was similar to Michelle. Why did you make me? Why aren't you helping me? Why did you create 
the kind of body that would have this horrible illness in it. And so that's a lot of what's going on. And I think that that makes Interview with the Vampire especially emotional, lots and lots of grief and pain. Mm-hmm. Initially, she was not able to bring her grief into any kind of closure when she first wrote the novel, but then she went back in and really worked out a lot of the grief. And she has some a very poignant passage where Louis be, is really aware that one of the reasons he cannot let go of Claudia is that it's, she represents an era to him. Mm. Just like Michelle with Anne, she represents an era to him that he cherishes, that he does not want ever to end. And yet it will end because uh, all things do end in some way or another. And I think that tight embrace of this child uh, really represents what Anne was going through. She cannot give this up. And it's not just Michelle. Her mother had died from alcoholism. And the mother had even said to her that it was in the blood, that her grandfather and her father both had had this craving for alcohol. Mm So that's like a bloodthirst, like the vampire gets overwhelmed. And uh, that's an image that Anne never forgot. So I think between watching her mother die and then watching her daughter die, both of which were implicated as blood disorders, I mean, there's the metaphor right there with the vampire. Right. Absolutely. What, if anything, do you know about Anne's relationship to motherhood? Because as you know, especially in episode for we're seeing what it is to create a child as humans are born without choice uh, vampires are often made without choice well she certainly had to come to terms with that when she and stan decided to try to have another child mm-hmm. <laughs> because would this happen again both of them knew it would completely break them she she had to think a lot about what her mother had been to her and She needed to pull herself together if she were going to be a mother again. And she had a lot of grief and guilt over, had she done something? Had it been part of her that had made her daughter get infected and die? Had she not done enough? I mean, I I remember all the research she was doing about this kind of illness and is there something she didn't know that she should have known? Mm-hmm. Which is was to say she feels utterly responsible as a parent. And if your child dies or gets into any kind of trouble, that comes back on you. Right. Now, so they did have another child, Chris, but when they're thinking of having another child, what what is that gonna mean? Can they can they do it? Can they right. can they rise to the challenge of it and try again. And they decided, yes, they could. Right, right. As you said, not simply rise to the challenge and start again, but also this idea of starting fresh, right? How do you not let the events of the past control the way you treat the next child and what it is to really let go of that? And if it really can even be done, certainly, you know, because that's a big question. (laughs) Yeah. And if and what if they have another issue, you know, physical malady of some kind with the next child? I mean, Yikes! Then, then doubly so. It is. It is about us. Some, there's something in us that isn't going right. to let us have this happiness. And yeah, you know, you sure see a lot of those themes. And, and you know, the, it's not limited to her 
vampire novels, uh, all the novels explore many of these same themes. You know, she gave up her religion. She had been raised Catholic and she found that God had betrayed her essentially. And so there can't be a God, which feeds into the whole vampire thing that they they can go into churches, they can look at crosses, they don't care about any of that stuff because it's not about religion. But mm-hmm. then later on, she starts having sense of religion again, which she then right. gives up again. But still, I think part of that was about kind of recreating the sense of comfort and family, because family means so much to her. You said that Anne was Louis and that Lestat was her husband, Stan. Was that something that she spoke about openly or something that you sort of found in working with her and speaking with her over the years? Oh, no, she she had already worked that out. She definitely saw that submissive side of her. She saw Mm -hmm. Louis as the submissive and Lestat as the dominant figure. Now, Lestat evolves enormously over the novels. Mm -hmm. But in that novel, he is cruel. He is right. uh, cold. He's it's sinister. He just doesn't get what Louis is going through. But Louis is completely dependent on him because he's the mentor. He's mm-hmm. the one who brought Louis into this world. He needs to have this person, even though it's torment for him to be around Lestat at times. And she did talk to me about that was the way it was happening in their relationship. They both were having a very difficult time with Michelle and, you know, they really needed a break from each other. And eventually they came back together and really kind of cleansed all that stuff so that they could, Mm. I guess, reunite and make it work again, which they did. Right. But the things that Louis is going through as the dependent, submissive person are exactly what Anne was feeling like. She did feel really helpless. Mm. But then later... As she grows stronger, she had disdain for Louis, actually. (laughs) And as Lestat comes back, he's this figure with with vibrance and vitality, and that's her. Now she's Lestat. Mm. So Lestat and Louis are the two sides of herself, and she had to find her way with Lestat to be strong again. And through Lestat, she could do that in a way she couldn't do with Louis. Right, 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 right. You know, of course, Anne's work has inspired so much fandom for so long. What was Anne's relationship like with her fans? Because certainly, as you're telling us, she is processing a lot of her own feelings around, you know, grief, her marriage, her own identity. And then this fandom builds up around her. It seems like it could have been a touch overwhelming, maybe. As an author, you're kind of reclusive. (laughs) So, So the visibility of fame can can be overwhelming, but at the same time, you want to succeed because you want to keep writing. So of course, you have to acknowledge the fans. I mean, there was a time when you could be like Kurt Vonnegut, (laughs) (laughs) just like, who cares? I don't want to meet anybody. And Anne wasn't like that. She, She liked that she had a fan base, that they enjoyed her work. Mm -hmm. Now, were you by any chance part of the Vampire Lestat fan club? I went to all the balls. The uh, Yeah. Tell me yeah. everything. Fun, wild, <laughs> crazy. Anything happened there that you can never speak of again? 
I mean, each one was different. So I was on this scene when they first started it. So I knew the officers. They just wanted to express their devotion, enthusiasm. And since they lived in New Orleans, it was a perfect place to say, why don't we throw a party, a Halloween party for, you know, these characters. And Anne graciously would make an appearance. Sometimes she'd stay for a while. And there was, and actually Mm -hmm. um, Kirsten Dunst came to one of them dressed as Claudia. There are a couple other celebrities who popped in. There were some bands that played. I think Courtney Love came once. That sounds maybe. right. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. Trent Reznor, because I think he was living in the neighborhood. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you dress up though, Dr. Ramslin? Did you dress up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, ah! absolutely. That's You have to. I love yes. it. Yes. You have to have fun. <laughs> yes. It was, it was a blast. That's cool. Now, I've also heard you've gone undercover in vampire subcultures. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you know I'm <laughs> yes. not going to let you leave without telling me about this. Okay. First of all, tell me what a vampire subculture is and tell me what you would do. Tell me everything. Well, a woman in Manhattan who was reporting on the vampire subculture there disappeared. Mm-hmm. Susan Walsh was her name. And she she was uh, she just was missing. Oh my god! Right around when I w- had finished maybe the last book with Anne Rice, the Anne Rice Reader, or something like that. And so my agent and I were talking, and he said, "I bet you could get into that subculture and find out some things." <laughs> so I thought, "I bet I could." <laughs> I had never done immersion journalism before, but. It was pretty easy to contact somebody who was running a vampire subculture. He was a fang maker, so <laughs> he made fangs for me and invited me to the vampire. Okay, so literal fang maker. Oh, it's real. And there were quite a few wow. of them. I didn't know if that was like a phrase for something. Okay, he made actual fangs. Okay. This is in the 1990s. It was a huge role-playing time. There were the live-action role-play mm-hmm. LARPs all over the world for, for with vampires all over mm-hmm. the world. So this guy put together this this thing in New York where people could come. Mm-hmm. There was a club called Mother where it was a vampire night every Tuesday night or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you could go. And then I found out there were these clubs in other towns too. Wow. So I went to London and Paris. I went to San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, Houston, Las Vegas. The pageantry mm. was amazing. Lots of jewelry, lots of very mm-hmm. expensive clothing, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So there are a number of ways to participate. One of the things was the this um, penthouse suite called uh, the Nutcracker Suite, where they were doing S&M things as vampires. So they had <laughs> vampire night with bondage and discipline and all of that stuff. Um yeah, that was different. It wasn't quite the Anne Rice experience, right. <laughs> but <laughs> I came away with a haunted ring uh, that oh. led me into the ghost subculture. So I had a blast. Wow. Dr. Ramslin, you have lived, okay? You have lived. We have to go get a drink because I just love that you can just be like, so this one time when I was in London at a vampire club, like you can just start any story with that any time. True, true. <laughs> And frankly, I loved it because the characters I met were amazing. They they were just people, you you know, you're not going to meet them just any place. Right. And they felt free to be themselves in a place like that. I loved asking them their story. 
what got you into this? Why do you love the vampire or being a vampire's victim or being a vampire hunter? Okay. You got to be safe when you in the vampire subculture, okay? <laughs> Don't make any right. enemies. Right, right. It can go south real fast. Well, I mean, I did. I met one guy. I met a guy who kept contacting me through these various ways. And this is when the internet was just beginning. There was no social media, but there were chat rooms and there were vampire chat rooms. And so this guy contacted me and he wanted me to meet him. And finally I did his, I called him Wraith in the book, like a a ghostly Wraith. Mm -hmm. This is how I got the Haunted Ring. I stole the ring. (laughs) I still have that ring. You stole it? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Dr. Ramsey, you wild. You wild. (laughs) Yep. I did. I still have it. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> a haunted ring of a vampire? How could you not take that? Well, of that? course, but now I also like I see the movie of this. <laughs> like, do you keep it in like a locked box? Is it, you know what I mean? Like, where is it for safety? It's probably not in a safe place, <laughs> but it's where, <laughs> it's where I can see it. Okay. Okay. Maybe you want to keep an eye on the haunted ring. I get yeah. that. Now, final question, because as I'm sure you can tell, I'm a hard-hitting journalist. Okay. You have met a lot of people, certainly in your work, in your life, who, as you said, are fascinated by the idea of the vampire, the vampire myth, people who want to be vampires. Would you ever want to be a vampire? I did when I was a little kid. Huh. I watched Bela Lugosi. I read Dracula. I would go to sleep with my arms crossed over my chest hoping I would become a vampire by morning. And I never did. <laughs> but, but now, today, uh, no, I wouldn't <laughs> want to. Because I, I I, actually think that Anne got it right. I think it would really wear on you after a while. You easily could get bored and then you're stuck, mm-hmm. right? Yep. <laughs> so, nah, I wouldn't want to be. I think, I think I'm... Much more existential as a human being. Yeah, I'm with you. But I'd like to be a ghost. Okay. I didn't have it in a movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, why movie theater? (laughs) So I can watch movies all the time for free. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, talking to us all about Anne Rice giving us so much information that really does deepen our understanding of the show we're watching and of course to her books oh this has been a real real treat thank you well thank you it's fun appreciate being here who you know what dr ramsley gave me Anne rice fever but i tell you i don't want the cure i do not i do not because that was a journey and i loved every second of it now don't leave yet y'all it's easter egg time you know i'd be having them little nuggets Last week, we heard from the incredible production designer, Mara Lapierre-Schlup, who really has thought about every last detail. And in this episode, we have a prime example of that. Mara made sure that Claudia's bedroom was decorated with all these creepy-ass dolls because Anne Rice was an avid doll collector herself. Why, Anne? I need to know why you had all them dolls. Because the dolls can be a little creepy. They be a little creepy. I don't know if that's a power move so that when people walk into your house, they see the dolls and they just do whatever you want. But it's wild. Hi, my name is Cheryl. I've been a fan for like three years now. Uh, One thing I wanted to say about the show was, I mean, beyond literally everything else, I loved seeing the shots they did on location in New Orleans 
And, uh, you know, I recognized a lot of them. I, I don't live in New Orleans, but ever since I got into like, you know, Anne Rice, I've fallen in love with it. And one time when I was 17, I was on vacation there with my family and my family's Catholic. So that Sunday we went to mass at St. Anthony's. And so imagine my delight when I find out that that very same church, St. Anthony's, is is the location where we see a guy kill two priests, kind of set the place on fire, throw some pews around, profess his love to another man, make out with that man, then turn that man into a vampire in front of Jesus and everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, needless to say, that whole thing was pretty healing for me as a lesbian who grew up Catholic. At that point, I just knew I was hooked on the show. I I cannot wait to see how this unfolds. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, we love a healing moment. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. I love it. I love it for you. And I now feel like this has also happened to me too as a result of this scene. Thank you so much for calling in. And I'm so happy you love the show. You guys, I asked for voicemails. And you are leaving me voicemails. And I want more. I'm addicted. So call in with your thoughts and burning vampire questions to 888-788-VAMP. That's 888-788-8267. Your message might even be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. Next week, we'll be joined by Hannah Moscovich, the writer of Episode 5, and Kaylin Coleman, who plays Grace, Louis' sister. And she has had a very rough go of it. And we'll welcome back Tanana Reeve Du, UCLA horror professor, who will help us dig into the real juicy drama in Episode 5. Because trust me, this episode is a big one. Thanks for listening to the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire podcast. Watch new episodes of Interview with the Vampire every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC Plus. Podcast episodes drop the same day. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC Plus, go to amcplus.com and use promo code INTERVIEWPOD. That's interview, P-O-D. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinette, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Our producers are Ben Goldberg and Aaron Kelly. Our associate producer is Natalie Paird. Darby Maloney is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. Thank you again to Bailey Bass and Dr. Katherine Ramsland for joining us. And I am Naomi Perrigan. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees.